Today we're going to be in 1 Peter 5, really finishing out the chapter. And we covered the last time, you know, Peter speaks about uh, tough times and, uh, you know, persecutions. And certainly we want to consider having elders and pastors and uh, some type of structure, church structure and leadership, so that when the hard times come, uh, there's some good leadership that can help steer the church through these difficult times. So we talked about what it means to be an elder, a bishop, a pastor, a deacon, uh, and really from a biblical standpoint, not necessarily what it's turned into 2,000 years later. Uh, so today we're going to finish up this letter and try to tie in everything and really understand what Peter was saying to his target audience. So just to start, um, continuing the thought of elders and pastors and really church leadership if you've ever read Calvary Chapel Distinctives, uh, Chuck Smith, I mean, Chuck Smith started the Calvary movement, and basically, there's nothing real fancy about it. It's, it's really based on scripture. So as you read the distinctives about the Calvary Chapel movement, you understand what it's all about. But basically, it's, the model is that it's a Paul and Moses model for the church. And let me jump to Exodus 17. It's just a few verses here. Exodus 17. You know, the children of Israel, the exodus from Egypt, and they have to wander through the uh, wilderness and eventually getting into the promised land. And certainly they got a lot of opposition. It was physical, it was war, but it was also really a spiritual opposition. So in, in uh, 17, starting with verse 8, it says, Now Amalek, which from the Amalekites, came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So you have two groups here. Moses, Aaron, and Hur go to the top of the hill, probably overseeing the battlefield. And Joshua chooses choice soldiers to fight with the Amalekites. And so it was that when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But there's a problem. Moses' hands become heavy or tired. So he, he, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And you see the situation where Moses is called to be the leader. But Moses can't do it all by himself. And you got these men that help out. Well, certainly Joshua is, as a general, is mobilizing the troops to fight the Amalekites. But God has ordained Moses to be the leader. So we have the rod of God. It wasn't a magic rod. It was symbolic of the faith that Moses had in God and also the leadership that God uh, uh, conferred onto Moses. And the problem is that, listen, battles could take days, weeks, whatever. So this battle was a long battle. Moses is getting up in years, and, you know, number one, it's, it's tough to stand all day in the hot sun, and his supporters took a stone, put it under him so he could sit down. You know, Moses passes out. we got a problem with the battle. The other problem is that Moses, try this. Try putting your arms out all day long. Do it for an hour. See if you could even do it. No doubt his arms became and his shoulders got fatigued. So he's a human, right? So what happens is Aaron and her helped to lift his arms, and no doubt at this point, maybe he's got a two-handed gra grasp on that rod of the Lord. And there's one guy on each side lifting up his arms and his shoulders. Now, maybe at the end of the day, Moses had no feeling left in his arms and his fingers. There was no blood left in it. But 
they won the battle, and he could, you know, of, of course, recover. So this is the model of Calvary Chapel, where there's a, a central leader, right? But he needs help. Now, if you look at even Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he gave him some good advice. When Moses was taking all these cases, all these grumblings within the, the, the two million or so children of Israel, arguing and fighting with each other, he was like the judge. But he was the municipal judge, the superior court judge, and the supreme court judge. Moses was getting worn out. So Jethro says, why don't you kind of be up there like the Supreme Court and take all the appealed cases and let these guys, you know, delegate authority. Let these guys who are capable start being uh, first, first line leaders and then you take the cases that get all the way up top. And this is the vision that Calvary has with the senior pastor, sort of that Moses' model. Now, I will say this, that if I had to go to two services and I had to do it all myself, the first thing I would do is take my cell phone, throw it in the river, and I'd run as far away as I could. You see what I'm saying? I need good people too, you know, and, and every senior pastor needs good, solid uh, men and women that he can rely on to help everything kind of come together. You see the same thing with the Apostle Paul. Uh, he needed Sylvanus, he needed Timothy, he needed Titus. Uh, Paul couldn't do it all himself, right? So this is the model we look at. Now I would add that the vision of the senior pastor given by God must be a biblical vision. That should go without saying. And I would say this, ask my wife, I'm not very creative, um, I, I'm, I'm a simple person, and after 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit working through the church, I can't say that I could reformulate God's word and make it any better than he's laid it out in scripture. Right? So that you don't have to worry about. You got these guys out there that keep trying to reformulate the gospel, trying to make it appealing, trying to get it to sell, trying to add stuff to it that doesn't belong with it, and it doesn't work. I'm going to read an article that, that I've been thinking for a while now, and I just finally found somebody who put it in words. It's in uh, onenews.com, uh, one and the article is Hipster Christianity versus authenticity. Now this is written by two young guys in their 20s. Very interesting. He said that in this, there's this movement now with the young folks or these churches that are trying to draw in the young people and what they're doing is they're uh, really focusing on, and I'll just say the cliche, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And really in a sense that uh, they want to be cool so they can attract the youth. Now he says, again, from a 20-something right out of his mouth, he goes, the problem is the nature of cool is always changing. He goes, anytime you're at church and you're trying to be relevant, you end up looking a little desperate. Um, he speaks about the tactics that these movements use to win the youth. Now, I would just say this. I give our teens and our young people a lot more credit than to think that the only thing that can attract them is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Some of the things coming out of the pulpits are really bordering on pornography and offensive. And there's uh, a quote in the article that I'm not even going to read because I don't think it's appropriate on a Sunday morning. But this is what he says in the end. He says, if the evangelical Christian leadership thinks that cool Christianity is a sustainable path forward, they're severely mistaken, McCracken contends. As a 20-something, I can say with confidence that when it comes to church, we don't want cool as much as we want real. If we are interested in Christianity in any sort of serious way, it is not because it's easy or trendy or popular. It's because Jesus himself is appealing and what he says rings true. True. Now, the surveys are showing that young people are leaving the church. However, what the young people are turned off by is not Jesus Christ. See, this is the part that we, that, that are, that's missed. What the young people are turned off by is churchy 
uh, clicky, you know, cultural Christianity. They want authenticity. So what the, what the church is doing is responding by trying to make the church cool. And again, I think that it sells our youth short. I think a lot more of our youth than to think that the only way to attract them to God is by uh, lascivious language, talking about getting high, and, and other things. I, I just don't agree with that. I, I think more of our youth than that. And I will tell you this, that Jesus never lowered himself to reach anyone. Remember, he influenced others. He didn't allow others to influence him. Because he was real, because he was authentic, because the religious leaders were phonies, right, and hypocrites, they came, everyone came to Jesus because he was real and authentic. And that's what I think that this movement um, misses. And why do I bring that forward is because, you know, we are held accountable as church leaders as to what our uh, vision is. Listen, it's laid out in scripture. You build the body of Christ. We become strong, healthy sheep. We win our relatives and our co-workers and others to Christ. We disciple them and build them up as they come into the church. And, you know, if it worked in a perfectly and, and everybody could lay down their wills and really want uh, salvation, eventually everybody comes to the, gets into the kingdom, and that's our goal. So um, that's what I would say my goal is. A few other characteristics for elder pastor before we move on is you want somebody who's dependable, reliable. You want somebody with a positive outlook, not moping around in ministry. And that's another thing. Kids, teens pick up on that. They pick up where you're not interested in the Lord and you're preaching up here because it's your job. Well, they're not going to be interested if you're not interested. And I do have to make a point clear. Let me just go back for a minute. You all know that I played paintball with your teens, and I had a great time. Now, I wasn't trying to be a 20-year-old. Um, I can have fun with teens. I love to go to teen events. I love to mingle with them and talk to them. But what I won't do is when I get into this pulpit, I will not bow to any culture. And you know what? Your teens respect that. Because your teens say, if I make it to 42, I want stability. I don't want a pastor who's acting like a jerk to try to win me over. You know, these guys need to grow up a little bit. So I can have fun, but when I'm in the pulpit, you know, game is on, man. It's, it's all about the scripture. It's all about what God's word is, and that is attractive to the youth. Um, ministry involves sacrifice, and it can come in many areas. This is another thing. When we sign up and we say, I want to serve the Lord, there are some things we may have to sacrifice. Uh, Jesus said, count the costs. And many did count the costs in his day. And even in John chapter 6, Jesus said some hard things. And it's as many of his disciples walked with him no more. They said, you know what? This is getting a little heated. We're coming under pressure from the authorities. He's saying some stuff we don't quite grasp. And it says that many of the disciples walked away. Now, not the 12, but um, he had many disciples that followed him. So count the costs. You may sacrifice in terms of your friends. Certainly, if you're in ministry for a long time, you will sacrifice, if you're doing it the honest way, financial opportunities, and you will sacrifice your time. My wife found a, um, uh, in my son's journal, uh, see, we're under the belief that until he pays rent, his room is also our room. <laughs> Amen to that, right? Remember those, those two guys that blew up the high school, uh, Dylan Klebold? Uh, mother never went in their room. They had a padlock on the door. Now, you're not paying rent. I have access to your room. When you pay rent, we'll talk about it. But she found a, a journal, and, and when we had started this you know, merger, it just was very busy for our family. And a lot of you, you, a lot of you stepped up to the plate. Uh, and my son just talked about his whole spring break was all about going to the new church. 
kind of made us sad a little bit, but there is a sacrifice. There is that counting of the cost. And he does see that, that his parents are serious about uh, being in the Lord's business. And I do make up it up to him in, in uh, other ways. Uh, but it's, it's, it's tough. It can be a juggling act at times. Uh, verse 5 in 1 Peter 5. Likewise, you younger people. So he's speaking about elders, speaking about church leadership. Uh, he says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I want to read just two verses, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13, that uh, tie into that. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, respect your elders. What does this mean? Um, have a mutual respect for each other. And humility and submission are used five times in these two verses. When the Bible repeats something, it's something that we need to pay attention to. Number one. When I was brought up, I was taught to respect those older than me. But it goes deeper than that. Those, and we talked about the dual function of, of um, uh, presbyteroi, right? Not only an age issue, but those in the church that are giving guidance that the Lord has raised up uh, to be spiritual uh, guiding members of the flock. So there's a respect that needs to be there, too, for those that uh, feed us spiritually. And it says we should all be submissive to each other. And I look at that as deference, right? Uh, we should be submissive to each other, and we should also have deference for each other. And you, you can see this come out in something simple. Like, let's say, uh, uh, and I'm just, this is purely hypothetical. Let's say it's a fellowship event. There's a lot of food. And I'm the first one online. And I see somebody brought in a whole bunch of baby brack ribs, which I really like. And there's 30 people behind me, or 50 people. I mean, if I take a whole rack... Seriously, I mean, I'm not saying I did that. I'm just saying hypothetical. <laughs> it's purely hypothetical. No, I didn't do that. I'm just telling you. Uh, what that would show is that I don't really care about the person at the end of the line. I just want what I want. See, even in something simple that you wouldn't, if you're trying to be fake, uh, you can't really be fake because sometimes it comes out. You're sitting at your plate and there's a whole bunch line of people and you got like the market cornered on those ribs. So there's that deference, even that uh, thinking of others, thinking of those towards the end of the line, right? Don't worry, when the uh, uh, barbecue is, is this Saturday, I'm not going to be looking at your plate seeing what you're eating. <laughs> but you understand what I mean. We covered in this book, in this letter, uh, submission to, to authority. If we have not submitted to authority, if we're not submitted to our spouses, church leaders, each other, and God's word, we can't say that we have a relationship with Jesus. Because Jesus even said in his word, if you love me, you will follow my word. Love is obey, right, when it comes to the Lord. And he says, all of you be clothed with humility. In the Greek, that word is interesting, to be clothed. It means to wear as an apron to serve others. And all I could think about was Jesus when he washed the feet of the disciples. He, put, he girded himself with that towel, and as he was bending over, I'm sure the disciples, if they were talking, stopped and looked kind of like curious, like, what's he doing? That's for a slave. You don't do that. You're, you're the Messiah. You're our Lord. But Jesus, and I've said this before, even while he was alive, he, he was dying. He died to himself. Even before he went to the cross, he put 
himself aside to serve others. And that clothed with humility, it's that wearing as an apron, right? The, the way we want to serve others and uh, bless others. And humility, I would say, is one of the most difficult attributes, if we're honest with each other, that, that for any of us to master. And I would say that for myself, too. Uh, you think about Lucifer, who became Satan, the adversary, the devil. He was given beauty, respect, responsibility, and honor, but he tried to usurp God. He tried to equate himself with God. And now he's going to be doing life in eternity in the lake of fire for that. Right? So that, that humility is something that's very important. And you know, it really ties in even with what we saw in the VBS presentation. Adults becoming like children, uh, really to their peers, kind of almost humiliating themselves to, to be like children, to reach the children, right? Those gentle, innocent, loving kids. Uh, so that humility is an important thing. Verse 7, he says, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now that casting cares means literally to throw upon. And we've seen this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, where Jesus speaks about those who are carrying heavy weights and heavy burdens and to release those burdens, and to take on Jesus' uh, pack because it's light, and his yoke because it's gentle. Constant fear, worry, and anxiety sometimes shows that we don't trust the Lord, right? If we humble ourselves under God and trust him and follow what he says, even though it's difficult, it shows that we trust him. We can cast our cares upon him and have peace through difficulties. I would say this, too, that maybe... In my own life, when I'm you know, ready to lay down and, and go to sleep and put my head on the pillow and the computers are still going and I'm thinking about things and uh, maybe I have a moment at times to say, gee, I'm concerned about something and tossing and turning a little bit. I have to talk to myself and I say, you're not trusting God. How can you call yourself a pastor? Go to bed. You know? So just letting you know now that I do talk to myself. But the bottom line is that, and, and really, I, I don't know how it happens, but I come to myself and say, yeah, that's true. Okay, I'm just going to shut off the computers and go to bed. See, if I'm tossing and turning, it's showing by my very actions and behavior that I'm not trusting God. If I truly trusted God, what am I going to do? It's 11 o'clock, I'm laying in bed, nothing I can do now anyway. I need to just trust him for the outcome, right? Verse 8, it says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And James 4, 7 says, submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. Our adversary, the devil. Now, why is this in here? Because when we raise our hands, especially to serve the Lord, when we raise our hands to say, you know, yes, I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I want to affect others for the gospel. Satan is your adversary. He's against you because he's against God. And we are the object of God's affection, so he hates us all the more and tries to take down as many of us as possible. But I will say this, when you raise your hand to serve the Lord, sometimes you become like one of those gazelles on the Nature Channel. You ever watch that? And, and the lion's like, you know, waiting to tear him apart. There's no mercy. Those lions show no mercy. They don't care if you're weak, elderly, sickly. If you're a gazelle, man, you're food to them. They will attack you. They will take you down. They will start ripping your skin off, tearing muscle from, from bone. And you've seen it on these, these nature channels. So this is an appropriate analogy of Satan. Now, we have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus. 
Right? We can resist the devil. Some of us don't realize the power that we have in our arsenal. Right? We don't exercise our spiritual military, our spiritual muscles. Right? And I would say this too, that I think, and, and I've said this before, those who uh, kind of are in Christianity in one foot and kind of in the world in the other foot, oh, those are the ones, those are the, the, the sickly stragglers that Satan tries to take down. They're the easy marks because they're kind of weak. They're in the world, they're in Christianity, and they're the ones that are kind of, you know, trailing away from the pack, and they're, an e they're easy picking for him. And some come to me and say, I don't understand, I don't understand, my life is falling apart, and, uh, you know, I, I, I have these, these ideas, and, and, and I'm just having struggles, and I'm like, you don't apply yourself. You know, you, you're not really serious about your relationship with the Lord, so don't be surprised. You know, I would say this too, that the higher you go into ministry, um, the, the bigger the attacks and sometimes the bigger the trophy you are. I mean, if you're, you, you look on the news and you say, okay, televangelists, right? And unfortunately, there's a lot of them that, and there's a lot of them that are good, but um, you, you're constantly seeing these guys falling into sin, dropping out of ministry. They're a big trophy. If they don't keep their lives proper, Satan will try to take them down because what, when he can take them down, he can cause the flock to be in chaos. He can cause the media to look in there and say, this is what Christians do. These guys are all hypocrites. So you have to understand the spiritual battle that's going on behind what we see in the wood and the metal and the flesh and the bone, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities, right? High demonic forces and it's constantly coming in and out and trying to, you know, cause chaos in our lives here. So it's something to look at. The Bible says to resist him. Now, Satan knows the difference, and so does God, if we're to resist him. Um, you know, Satan puts a temptation in front of you. You know, Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And I believe he said that with power and authority. And that's what happens to the devil. He resisted him. Sometimes we get a temptation and we go, oh, please, stop. Well, oh, that looks really good. Oh, please, don't, don't. You know, it's, it's just, oh, please, I can't take it. Lord, help me. Oh, that looks really good. Resist means resist, right? And we're just, we're just fooling ourselves because everyone else in the spiritual world knows if we're resisting or not. We have the power to resist. But our adversary, don't underestimate him. He's on the prowl. He roars. His ultimate desire is to devour us. And I would say this too, that, you know, Satan watches what Jesus does and tries to imitate him. He's not very good at it, but to some, he can, he can fool them. You know, Satan can do the whole lion and lamb thing, too. He can be that lamb. He can be with you when you're out with friends that you maybe you shouldn't be out with. He can be with you when you're, you know, throwing back that extra tequila that maybe you shouldn't be throwing back. He'll be with you on the dance floor, you know. He'll be right with you, you know, saying, hey, you look good. You got the mojo, man. You're, you're good. You know, you're happening. Everybody wants you. Everybody loves you. The best thing that Satan will do for him is to pump up your ego. So you forget about God because you've already ascended. Now you worship in yourself at this point. And then what happens the next morning? You know, those of you who've also been in the world, the next morning when you wake up and things are ruined, relationships are destroyed, and there's things that you, you don't want to remember and hope nobody else remembers, things that you can't take back, mistakes that have eternal consequences, right? Where's your friend that was on the dance floor with you? And I say this in a spiritual sense. You won't find him. All you'll hear is a distant laugh while he moves from you to the next victim. So keep that in mind. 
We said, I was a non-believer for 28 years, and uh, he's had his way with me, and I was dumb enough next weekend to, to jump into it and listen to him again. And eventually I said, why do I do this to myself? You know, I just humbled myself and, and said, you know what, Lord, I'm not, it's not working, just me doing it. You know, I need you in my life. I need you to be my Lord and Savior. So keep that in mind. When you're having a good time and, you know, the Holy Spirit's telling you not to do it, and you just keep, you know, it's going to be okay. You just kind of keep putting him down, ignoring him. Eventually you won't hear him anymore. So this is what Satan does. Verse 9, it says, Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. And Satan does this. He'll use sufferings and temptation. Some of us are more susceptible to temptation. Some of us are pretty good when it comes to temptation. So now he'll use sufferings. He has a lot of different weapons in his arsenal. Sufferings, temptations. He'll flip them back and forth. Or he'll lie to you. He'll tell you, how many of you heard, how many of you here have heard, you don't have to raise your hand, Satan say to you, you're not a real Christian. God doesn't love you. You're worthless. What do you have that God needs? He'll lie to you. Don't listen to him. Remember what Jesus did. He answered those lies with scripture. Satan will twist you. You made a mistake. You screwed up. It's all over for you. Don't even bother coming back to church. Don't even open up that Bible. Don't pray because God doesn't want to hear you. Those are good ones. Because he really, he's the great psychologist. He'll follow you around your whole life with a notepad with your name on it, taking notes, taking notes. This is all he does. And then he goes, ooh, that one worked pretty good. I'm going to save that one for a special time. Don't listen to his lies. He's a liar. He'll accuse you before the Father. But if you're under the blood of Christ, it doesn't matter. Jesus will say, yeah, that's right. He did all those terrible things. But my blood covered that. He's accepted my sacrifice. Right? And sometimes this comfort, like here, and I'll tell you the truth, listen, we're all together. Jamesburg is a pretty tight community. M many of you come from local areas. But Peter is writing to Christians that are scattered all throughout the Roman world. You might not see another believer for 10, 15 miles on foot. So he's trying to encourage them as they're going through this life without the comfort of other brothers and sisters. But knowing that your brothers in these different regions are also going through the same thing that you're going through. Verse 10. But may the God of grace, but may the God of grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You've got to catch this. There's an amen, but it's not the end. He says amen again. This is very important. This is very important. Amen. So be it. It's an agreement. But God, after the aforementioned trials and temptations, God is always there to shore us up. But do we take advantage of that relationship that God offers to us? Do we take advantage of it? I'll tell you what he does, and let me just take this in five steps based on what I just read in these two verses. He has called us unto his eternal glory, Christ Jesus. Let me just say this. He has personally called you and you and you. Do you know that? Do you realize that? As a body, but he's called us individually. We have a personal invitation. How many of you have gotten something in the mail, like an invitation to an important event, and they say that some dignitary is going to be there? Oh, wow, why would they ask me? How did they know about me? I'm not really very popular or known throughout the world. God has called us personally. He's better than any dignitary, any spiritual leader, any leader of any great ministry. God himself has personally called us unto his eternal glory. 
Just think about that for a moment. So we're called. Number two, we're perfected. Now, there's two different words for perfect. It's not uh, teleos, to be mature. This is a different word. It means to complete. The synonym for that is to repair. There's some of you sitting here right now that are a little broken, that maybe, you know, you've got a few wounds. There's some of you today who need to be repaired, who need to be mended. Am I telling the truth? Right? And God is there to repair you. So he doesn't just call us and then just leave us out there to dry. He also mends our hearts. He mends our wounds. He comforts us. Right? Three, we're to be settled. And that word means to lay a foundation. And that foundation is on the rock. Jesus said, if your foundation is on the rock, the rains will come down, the flood waters will rise, the hurricane, the gale forces, nothing's going to happen to your edifice, to your spiritual house, because it's, it's founded on the rock. And four, to strengthen. You know, God's like uh, the building inspector. He just looks at your house and he says, you know, it needs a little bit more mortar down there, it needs a Tico clamp up here, you know, it needs some, uh, the roof's a little sagging. What he does is he, he strengthens us. And then the fifth thing is, is to establish. I like this. It means to set fast or to fix firmly. My wife thinks that whatever breaks in the house of hers, she thinks I can fix anything. So I, I really try hard to do that. But I have this special epoxy that you mix together. It's, and, then when it, you know, <laughs> right? and then when it hardens, it's like super hard. So most of the things I do when I fix her stuff is use this epoxy. But I look at this, and this reminds me of to set with an epoxy. I am moved. I am in the direction of the Lord. I am having a relationship with him. He, he has set me to do something, and I will not be moved. That's what the Apostle Paul says. None of these things will move me. Well, you have four steps, and then the fifth steps, you're epoxied. You're cemented into that position that you're supposed to be in. But we need to take advantage of that, folks. And I would say this. This is encouraging. For everyone sitting here, I don't care if you're new here today, I see some new faces. This is for you. This encouragement is for you. Do you want this? Do you want to take advantage of this? This isn't a show. I really believe what I'm saying. I really do. To my last breath, right? Because God has set us in a path, and, you know, we don't have to look to the right or to the left. We can remain on that path, and it's open to everyone here. Last few verses, verse 12. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is true. Oh, this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So these are those parting words from the Apostle's first letter. Uh, with help from Silvanus. Maybe he does shorthand. Right? And you, you see this often with the apostles. They would have uh, somebody with them that could, they would, they would put their thoughts out there and then they would take the thoughts and write it on paper in, in an acceptable form of that, that Koine Greek so that when they sent it out, everyone could understand completely what the apostle was saying. So he was like a secretary. And, and Mark, or John Mark, his disciple, he discipled him. And this goes back to what we originally spoke about in the structure of any church, any Christian organization, right? I love the Sylvanuses. We need the Sylvanuses. We need those guys to help us and say, you know what, just say what you need to do, and I'm going to write it down. I'll make sure it gets done. 
We need the Timothys, right? We have to have the Timothys. Paul needed his Timothys. He needed his Tituses. Right? Those were important, non-negotiable part of ministry. And we also love the Barnabases, Paul and Barnabas. They war with each other at times, but eventually uh, they mended fences. And those that can help us to stay accountable, like those horizontal relationships. In verse 14, he says, greet each other with a kiss of love or a holy kiss. And we've seen this before. Now, if you're from a Mediterranean or Middle Eastern custom, you would understand this more because today they still do that. You could even see that on uh, when you watch the news, dignitaries from a foreign land, they, they kiss each other on the cheek or whatever the ca case may be. They're a little bit more maybe warmer greetings than Americans. As Christians, we do the Christian hug, but um, secular sometimes we, we kind of want our, our personal space uh, as, a, as a nation. But you see this with these customs, this, these kisses. Um, and that's really good because, you see, today, and, and I'm sure you've seen this, maybe um, this, we're just so, we have, there's Christians everywhere. You've got Christians in your neighborhood, you know, you can go online, um, wherever you need to find a Christian, you can. Now remember, here, they're scattered, they're separated. And this was encouraging to them because maybe they didn't have that place where they could go, where they could get together and fellowship. And maybe today we can kind of be choosy, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, Maybe choosy who we say hello to, who we hang out to, maybe have a click and maybe say, well, that person's not part of my click and these are my cool friends. But back then, you didn't have that luxury. If you saw another person who also believed in Jesus and was being persecuted, you would do anything you could to make a connection with that person, right? So I just would say this. In Peter's day, um, neuronic persecution was on its way. Today in America, maybe we don't stick together as much as we should, but maybe with uh, persecution, that also may change. And I would say this, the theme of this letter is how to live a Christ-centered life and the resulting peace and joy regardless of the circumstances. And it's no different today. Are you looking for that peace? Are you looking for that stability? Have you still not found it yet? What's the solution? The Bible says that there's peace, right? We have peace with God. We can have peace with each other. We can have general peace that surpasses all understanding, that encouragement that the Bible gives us, you know, that joy. How many have experienced that inexpressible joy? It's available for all of us. And when I, when I finally came to the cross and I started growing in the Lord, I, said to, I kept saying, why didn't I do this sooner? You know, because I was lied to all those years, saying, you just do it yourself, be your own man. And I did that, been there, done that. But the Bible says that we can have that peace. And I know people that come to me and say, you know, I want that. I want to believe the way you believe. I, I want that. But that is available to us. Jesus said to obey, not because he's a hard taskmaster, not because he says he's the celestial parent because I said so. Because when we obey him and we follow his word, it's good for us as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, that presentation.